It is so good to see you all. I hope that you've had a good morning thus far. Um, you're already better than the 915, to be honest with you, because you got to sleep in. So unless, of course, you served during the 915, and then you were here at O'Dark 30 with me. But, uh, but I am glad that you're here, and I know that, uh, that God has something for you. As a matter of fact, I believe he already has been introducing us to some things. I mean, through the singing and all that was it amazing. And I was, just, I was just drawn to this phrase, and it was uh, part of one of the songs that perfect love cast out all fear. Amen. Isn't that a great truth? Perfect love cast out all fear. That the perfect love of God has been, it just has a way of just dispelling, diluting and dissolving all fear. I don't know about you, but we have so many times in our life where we can fear, can't we? Uh, we can kind of get caught up in certain things and caught up in some things that we can control, maybe some things we can't control. And what I'm going to talk about today is, is so challenging because even this morning, um, there are some things that, that have been overwhelming for me and honestly for AJ too, and yet we just trust God all the way through it. And many of you have no idea what this is, um, but it's great because we have teams that are assembled to take care of these things. But today I have the pleasure of talking about how Christians are supposed to be a non-anxious presence in the world. And yet I was giving so many opportunities to be anxious all morning long. Um, right when I, actually on the way in, um, some of you, I said this last week, but teaching my 15-year-old daughter how to drive, she drove into church today. It was not as smooth as other days, just so you know. Not smooth at all. Many times to be anxious and to reach over and snatch a wheel out of her hand, or she's getting ready to take a turn, and she's not turning fast enough, so just, just the pull of like, all right, let's get going here. The ditch is calling our name. Let's avoid the, I mean, so many things like that, and that was this morning. It was not as smooth, babe. It wasn't as smooth as what it has been. I know, I know. We're working on it. And uh, so I tried to, to calm her down a little bit and be like, it's going to get better. You're still practicing all this. But then come into church and I'm welcomed with the brand new lights that we had installed, which is great, except the fact they don't work. So I'm, in, I'm just welcome to that. We have a whole set of lights. We're like, yes, we invested in this. We're really looking forward to these lights this morning, except they don't work. And yet we only have a couple of them. Everybody's looking up right now. It's okay. Do that. Just everybody look up right now. And just it's, it's only weird if everybody does it or nowhere, you know, only a couple of people do it. So everybody look up and then look at me. All right. So then the lights weren't working right. So then you know, the production team leader, Brian, goes back there and he fixes it. And he's like, well, at least we have lights. So praise God for that. And then I go back to my office and the story doesn't end. I go back to my office and, and then my bride, she's one of four people who lead the DBC Kids team. And she's back there and the, and the children's check in. How many people check their kids in today digitally through the yeah, that wasn't working right before the 915. Moments before the 915 was not working. So we're welcomed to all this, and it wasn't working. So then Brian, again, runs out to Walmart, gets a part, puts it in, and then fixes it, saves the day, and away we go. And all of you came in. I thought it was just a normal, like, it, this stuff just happens. You just press a button, and it just happens. It doesn't just happen. So uh, I have the, the pleasure of talking about how Christians should be a non-anxious presence in the world, and yet there's been a part of me that I've been praying away and worshiping away, and I'm like, I want to be the anxious presence in the room today, but I can't. So uh, because if I am, it really will, it, it will draw attention to me, and I certainly don't want to do that. God is so much bigger than me, and God's word is so, is so true, and it's so rich, and there's so much that, that God has for you today and has for me today for us to dig in, settle in, and then to take to heart. Last week, uh, we began this series, and at the end of last week, I gave you one phrase, and at the end of this talk, I'll give you another phrase that goes with that one, 
And, uh, and that's really, we're going to build to that throughout this whole talk and then put those two things together. And we have kind of a building block approach for the rest of this series. One phrase will build upon the other, and that way you'll be able to find out um, how you can evangelize, how you can share the good news with lost people around you. And really, that's the big deal. This is God's call for all, all of his children, God's call for ordinary people in everyday life, not extraordinary people. Sometimes it's ordinary people in everyday life. Um, I, I want to kind of prime the pump, so to speak, with this story, and a, a story that I, I heard recently. There was this, this boat. It was a small boat. I'm drawn to, like, boats right now. I just, I don't know why I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about my time in the Navy and all that. So sorry, I got to geek out on a moment. Just tell a story about a boat. Um, so there's this boat, it's a smaller boat and, uh, and it's just a small crew, not like the, the ship that I was on or ships that I was on. So it's a, it's a smaller boat and they're out in open water and they're just kind of trucking along. Everything's going great. And then a squall comes up and and if you've ever been out in open water, when, this, when the, the waves are up, you really have to be careful of the, the engine. You have to throttle the engine to make sure you just don't run it wide open, um, depending upon how far the waves are apart. So you're always having to kind of monitor that so you don't burn the engine up in between waves and, and do undo uh, damage to the engine. So this, this boat is out, and they're trucking along, and the crew's doing their thing. A squall comes up, and the waves are just beating the side of this thing, and the crew's starting to be concerned. Well, down in the engine room, that's where most of the crew was at this point because now they're concerned about the engine because now the engine is, is working harder than what it ought to, and they think that the engine's going to cut loose, and if the engine cuts loose, then they have nothing. Like, there's no defense. There's no way they can get away from the storm. They'll be stuck in it, and they, they fear that the ship... Well, capsize. So the, the, the crew down in the engine room, now they're, they're tending to freak out. Now they're one's whispering to the other, I think we're going to die. I think we're going to die. We're going to capsize. I'm getting a lifeboat. No, there's not enough lifeboats. It's like Titanic. Not enough lifeboats for everybody. I'm going to get there before you. All these things. I can't swim for two days. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So they're freaking out, right? You get the picture. They are freaking out. And yet there was one person in the engine room amongst all the other ones that were freaking out. He goes up to the bridge and that's where the captain would be, the guy who's in charge. Go up to the captain and he sees the captain. He's just got this big grin on his face and he's just right there at the bridge and he's just staring down the storm and he's laughing and he's just like getting into it. And in that moment, the guy who, who went up to the bridge, then he turns around and goes back down to the engine room and the people in the engine room said, what's going to happen? Are we going to die? What was the captain like? And, and the guy, he came back and he just said, I think we're going to be fine. He's like, what do you mean we're going to be fine? The engine's smoking. We're freaking out. The storm's raging. He says, yeah, but the captain has just this grin on his face. He's just like, it's like he's enjoying it. It's like he's confident, like he's, he's been here before. The captain was the non-anxious presence that then was cast down to the rest of the crew. And then the crew started to believe that it was going to be okay. All because one person had a non-anxious presence. I have a question that I want us to dig into uh, before we get into our scripture. What if one of the most important elements of the Christian's life is to let other people watch us suffer well? I, I realize that uh, as soon as you hear the word suffer, you feel something, and that's okay. I feel something every time I read it. But what if one of the most important elements of the Christian's life is to let other people watch us suffer well and go through hardships while trusting Jesus and also being honest about our failures. What if that is 
one of the big things that God wants us to do in the world. What if even in the midst of of the, the suffering that we will endure and there's a matter we all will suffer. This is a fallen world. We all get sick. We all know people who get sick. We all suffer. We all will go through a job loss or we'll know somebody who go through a job loss. You'll always have somebody who will either victimize you or you will victimize someone else. This is just, this world is, is just fit for suffering. There's no way, there's no way we can avoid it. But I don't say avoid of emotion. I say it with a lot of emotion. But what if one of the things that God wants us to do is to go through this level of suffering, understanding that people are watching us. What if one of the things that God wants us to do is be a presence of just, even in the middle of the hardship, just to be a presence where we just faithfully trust Jesus, even in the middle of the hardships. And what if maybe even in the middle of this, that we can just simply be honest about our own failures. We can be honest about the times where we were wrecked with anxiety like the world is wrecked with anxiety. Maybe in, in, these, in these moments, maybe we can just be honest with other people who are far from God and say, yes, you know what? I'm prone to worry. I'm trying to grow in my relationship with Jesus, but I'm prone to worry like you are. What if in that moment, it's a way of connecting humanity to humanity so that we could share the gospel with them? Just being honest with our failures. One thing I know absolutely true is this. People will evaluate your life before they listen to your words. People will evaluate your life before they listen to your words. You can be the most out front, outspoken, Christian person who wears the shirt, listens to the music, a Bible verse for everything. You're always ready to whack a mole somebody with the truth. And I just want you to know, you can have all of the knowledge in the world, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's what the word of God says. We can be, we can have all of these things. We can have all the answers. We can, we can cliche people to death. We can give these little Christian cliches. God's got this. We can give all these things. But yet if your life doesn't match your words, you're not fit for following. And they're evalu- people are evaluating your life to see if you actually believe what you say that you believe. See, it's all a matter of people watching us watching us. And I know that when it comes to the idea of sharing the good news or evangelism or getting the gospel out, some of you are like primed and ready automatically. Some of you are like on go. This is your, you already, you, you already embraced the series last week. Go and you have a message like on your desk or in your cubicle or on your toolbox or, or at home next to your computer. You're like, go, go, go. You're already embracing this. And some other people are reluctant. I get it. And one of the reasons why we're reluctant is because we tend to believe that it's all on us. So I want to start somewhere that's not obvious, and we're gonna land in a place that's gonna teach us how that we can be the non-anxious presence in the world that the world needs. Even in the midst of a world being racked with anxiety and fear and worry, that we can be this presence in the world so other people would evaluate our life and then hopefully listen to our words. You ready? Here we go. First thing is this. I want you to know that Jesus is revealing himself to us, and all the while he's inviting people to be his followers. He's inviting people to be his followers. God generally reveals himself. There's two passages I wanna share with you. First was in Romans, Romans 1.20. It says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, seen with the eyes, 
also being understood from what has been made, meaning set apart so that men are without excuse. So that all the while, since the beginning of humanity, God has been revealing himself in a general way with all of humanity for all times. So when it comes to you sharing the gospel with somebody else, the burden is on all on you. That means every day God is revealing something to every part of humanity, revealing something about himself, his divine nature, and his divine power. He's revealing day by day in a general way outside of you. This should be kind of lightening the load off your shoulders a little bit. The burden isn't all on you. God is doing this also in Psalm 19, 1 and 2. It says this, and this is an amazing thing. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God. How many people have been just blown away by looking up at the sky one day? Like a sunset, a sunrise, the middle of the day, it's a cloudy day and the sun just breaks out from the clouds and you can just see the sun rays or you see the rainbow or a double rain. I mean, just all of these things. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They display knowledge of an intentional design for humanity, for all of the created world. That God created out of nothing, but he created it with an intentional design. Not by accident, it wasn't just by happenstance. And, and out of that creation, day after day, night after night, God has been speaking to humanity. And even the, the sky and the heavens declare the glory of God. God has been sending a message to humanity long before you and I were here that God exists and that there's, there's something we need to do with this knowledge. All, I want to share the last part of this. It says night after night, they display knowledge. And this knowledge, part of the, the revelation of God is that there's a knowledge greater than our human understanding, that the only way that we can tap into this knowledge is by tapping into God. And he's generally revealing this, these things to us. It's not enough to save us, but it's enough to make us curious. But at the end of verse 20 of Romans 1, it said, so that men are without excuse. See, also this knowledge and the sin nature that's within you is enough to condemn you. So it's, it's the general revelation of God and the sin nature within you, it's enough to condemn you. This general revelation isn't enough to save you. Sadly, but God has a special revelation. We'll get to that in a couple minutes. So God is revealing himself. He's showing himself through the nature. He's also showing himself through our limitations and our circumstances, through the storms, if you will, through the circumstances of, of our suffering. He's showing us the frailty of, of humanity showing us that, that you may be fully capable, you may think that you're fully capable, you may be capable of doing a bunch of things, but he's showing you in the frailty of your situation or in the frailty of a loved one or the frailty of your child that you are so limited. And that circumstance may have caught you off guard, but certainly didn't catch God off guard. And then even in the level of that suffering and, and the temptation for us to take on more than what we can handle or control. God is revealing to us our frailty and our need to cry out for him. So the circumstances would maybe suffering, maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's just a slowdown at work. 
God is revealing himself in those situations. Even if, if it's caused by sin, God can still work through that to reveal something to you. Maybe it's you're being dependent on yourself. Maybe you're being dependent on, on a 401k. Maybe you're being dependent on what that job gives you. Maybe you're being uh, dependent on, on just the, the, the persona that comes from it. Maybe just the, the, the way that you look around other people, that you prop yourself up. And maybe when you suffer that job loss, God is revealing something to you. He's taking you off that little pedestal and showing you how to trust him in the middle of that storm. God reveals himself in the middle of our limitations. When we have an illness, we're being given the awareness of a physical limitation. But how many other people wish we had more hours in a day to do more things? Would anyone be honest with me? Like just, oh, I just wish there were more hours. We have the limitation of time of which it ticks away. And thank you for being here because I'm taking some of it right now. But we have the limitation of time every day. You can't add to it. You only live in the midst of it. We have the limitation of time that just ticks, ticks, ticks away. And the limitation of time in your life and my life, it should allow us this, this understanding, at least to begin to understand that this life is temporary. But time will go on well beyond our time on earth. And that time here is temporary, but yet there's an eternal time. And that's where we spend eternity, either connected with God or separated from God. So we have circumstances. We have our own limitations. Time is certainly that. Some of us have financial limitations. And all, uh, all God's broke people said, amen, right? Financial limitations, which is everybody. We all, we all want to do more than what we can afford. I, even somebody who is a billionaire, they, their, their vision of, of what they could do with their money just increases all the more, the more you have money. I'm told I've never been one, but I also don't want to be one. I don't. We're also limited in our intellectual ability. God, God only allows us to, to understand or perceive certain things. <laughs> Because if, if we could understand all things, if we were the most brilliant, uh, well-spoken, articulate, all-knowing, then we would be like God and we would have no need of God. But yet our minds are so finite, and which is why we only scratch the understanding of things. And there's, there's always this, this level of scratching your head and saying, God, I just don't know. There's always an understanding greater than what we currently possess. And even that is God is revealing to himself. It says, you don't know but I do. So even in the midst of all this, what are we to do? We're to rely on Jesus to give us wise counsel. Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, where there is no counsel, the people fall. Some of you know this firsthand. Some of you have either not gotten advice and you've gone off and done your own thing and you've suffered for it. Some of you have went out to get advice. You were given solid, godly advice and you did your own thing and you suffered for it. And you fell. In your life and the consequences of those decisions would bear true in this verse. The verse continues, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So even in that, isn't not just going to one person. I'm, I'm talking to somebody today, some follower of Jesus in here today who's about to make a decision. I don't know who it is. But somebody's about to make a decision and you're about to make a decision rooted in your own desires. 
Don't just go to one person who's going to validate your desires. Go to a bunch of people who, who are unbiased by what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Go to the multitude of counselors. Multitude, several people. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Give them the facts. Tell them how you feel, but give them the facts. And trust the multitude of counselors because there's safety there. Also, we have peace with God. Certainly can have peace with God. Christians have peace with God. This is what it says in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Some of you are, are racked with worry and fear and anxiety because what rules your hearts is you. What rules your hearts is your 401k. What rules your hearts is how much land you have. What rules your hearts is, is your hobbies. What rules your hearts is how many kids you have. What rules your hearts is the fact that you don't have kids. What rules your hearts is you don't have a husband yet or you don't have a wife yet. And that's ruling your heart and your life has no peace because you're not allowing the rule of Christ in your heart. When you have the rule of Christ in your heart, then you have peace. And also... With, with the, the peace element and, and certainly with the wise counsel, trusting in his perfect timing, which means that even in the middle of a circumstance, maybe you can control, maybe you can't control. That even in the midst of that unknown and uncertainty and the storm, that you can cling to passages like this, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. See, it's in the middle of all of this and the storms, whether created by someone else or created by us, in the middle of us that we can stay tethered to Jesus, that we can learn how to become the non-anxious presence in the world and the one that the world needs. After all, this is what Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world in the middle of your weaknesses. You're the light of the world in the middle of your circumstances. You're the light of the world in the middle of your limitations. Our main passage is Matthew 8. I invite you to go there. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. Matthew 8, 18 through 27. What we're going to see in this passage is not only how we can have a non-anxious presence in the world, but we're also going to see by a conversation that Jesus has with two different individuals. He has two conversations with these individuals. We're also going to see that although their, their words were, they were saying something in words, but Jesus challenged them in actions. And we don't know how that worked out, but we just know that Jesus said, your words need to match these actions if you're going to follow. So we're going to we're going to see what Jesus said about following, and also we're going to tie that into how these two things get in the way of our following, which then cause us to have an anxious presence in the world instead of a non-anxious presence in the world. Matthew 8, 18 through 27. Here we go. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, here's the actions that Jesus requires. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple, which means to me, it means that the teacher of the law was also a disciple. I'll dig into what disciple means in just a second. Another disciple said to him, Lord, 
First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus, here's the actions required. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, at first glance, you may look at this passage and say, well, Jesus was kind of harsh with these guys. He's not being harsh. What he's laying out is in two different ways, and he knows these two individuals' hearts, and he knows the things in those people's hearts, and God knows the things that are in our hearts that get in the way of our faithfully following him. So they're about to go on the lake. Jesus had just left the multitudes. means a lot. If you have the, the KJV, that's what your translation said. It was the multitudes. Love that word. He, he left the multitudes, and what Jesus would often do in these situations is he would leave the multitudes, and this is such the, if you want to draw something out, this thing going to be on your screen, but I, just so you have an idea of how Jesus discipled people. There was a lot of people who followed Jesus. They would, be, they would become apprentices or disciples, if you will. Disciple means learner. So there'd be the multitudes. If you think of a funnel, multitudes at the top, thinking narrow, right, going down. So it'd be multitudes. There'd be a lot. This, this is what you see in this passage. Then actually last week, I introduced the idea that Jesus sent out the 70 or 72, right? Different level of discipleship of Jesus. So have the multitudes at the top, 70 or 72, whatever number you choose, both have good evidence. 70 or 72. Now, narrowing the funnel, it goes down to 12. And this is also the level of investment that Jesus had with these disciples. So there's the 12. Then you cycle down to the three. And then if you look closely in the gospel, you see, in the gospel, excuse me, you see that Jesus actually spent more time with Peter and conversing with Peter than everyone else. And there's more stories about Peter in the rest of the gospels, which is interesting because Peter didn't write any of them. So it wasn't like Peter telling his own story. It was somebody else telling the story of Jesus, but they just had to write about Peter because there were so many instances. So multitudes, a funnel, again, multitudes, 70 or 72 level of, of people. Now it's shrinking, 12, 3, the top three, Jesus discipled very closely, and then Peter, the most closely that Jesus discipled. That was Jesus' model of discipleship. And honestly, it was also how much time he spent with each one, it depended on, as the, as the field narrowed, his investment of time was greater when the field narrowed. Back to our passage. That was extra. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. The teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He says, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. He's a teacher, and I love how he responds to Jesus. How does he respond to Jesus? He himself is a teacher of the law, but he calls Jesus what? Look in your Bible. Teacher. Well, I love this because he's saying teacher of the law, and now people would look at him, they would look at the teacher of the law, and he's like, he is the Bible answer guy. He's the one you go to. He's a teacher of the law. He knows the law. And now he's responding to Jesus as teacher because he recognizes that Jesus is teaching with a higher authority, teaching with a higher level of understanding than what he did. So now he's responding to Jesus as teacher. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That was, that was his words. But Jesus requires action in his following. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
I don't believe that Jesus was homeless, and that's not what Jesus is saying to this guy. I don't believe he's saying, well, hey, here's the deal. You need to be homeless, because I'm homeless. You need to couch surf the rest of your days. You're going you're gonna to be, be a free spirit. You're going to be able to, that's not what, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying at all. I believe that Jesus learned to trade under Joseph, that he learned carpentry, and yet there were seasons in his life where he did live as a homeless man. He did trust God that God would provide for him day by day by day by day, irregardless where it was that the spirit of God led him. He was trusting that God, the Father, was going to provide, which he did. In this, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is a common term that Jesus used. Jesus actually used this, uh, this term, Son of Man, to refer to himself dozens of times in the New Testament. He's referred to 80 times all total in the, New, in the New Testament as son of man. And he's showing himself as being in showing his humanity in those situations. As a matter of fact, what I love how the Bible speaks into itself, because in Daniel 7, there's this reference to the son of man, which is Jesus. Listen to this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that'd be God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I I love this because this is before um, there's the reference of the Apostle Paul in in, in Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, he says, you're ambassadors. It's a before Jesus makes all those references about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that now Daniel, hundreds of years before, he's saying the same thing. That the son of man is gonna usher in this, this kingdom. And this kingdom, he has all power and all authority and his dominion will go on forever. And yet Jesus, every time he would say son of man, he's tying himself to what the prophet Daniel had said, and others. Jesus also said this in Matthew 17, 22 through 23. He said, the son of man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised to life, and the disciples were filled with grief. They're filled with sorrow. How could this be, Jesus? Like, you're doing all these amazing things. I'm watching you heal people, Jesus. Like, you brought Lazarus back to life, Jesus. You, in John 2, you turn water into wine, Jesus. Like, like you've done all these things. How is this going to be true, Jesus? And they had grief. They had sorrow. You see, this is one of the great tenets of the Christian life. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I... Uh, you have no category in your mind to explain this other than to receive that it's true. If you really want to, to embrace what this says, you have to look at this in a way that, and, and understand that there's something happening greater than you. See, the Son of Man is going to be trade in the hands of men. Jesus predicted that he wasn't going to die of natural causes that he wasn't going to be at a banquet and he wasn't going to have some sort of ailment, some some abdominal ailment, and he was just going to die in the middle of a banquet. Jesus, he wasn't predicting. He's like, yeah, I'm just, there's going to be something that's happening. We're, we're, it's going to be a really hot day, and I'm going to be, we're going to be traveling these miles, and then I'm going to have a heart attack and die. You see, we would be able to understand that. 
But instead, what Jesus says, he says, the son of man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. He says, I'm going to die and it's going to be at the hands of men. And he most certainly was. But then he continues. He says, and then on the third day, he will be raised to life. And he says, on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life. You see, Christians don't believe in the Christian faith simply because the Bible says it and we just have our head in the sand and we're ignoring reality. The, the foundation of the, the Christian belief is this. We can go into the word of God and the word of God verifies the, the life and ministry and the death and the burial and the resurrection being true. So now we go into the word and the word of God validates what is said about Jesus is true. That's the reason why the Christians can believe what they believe. That's the reason why Christians can have a non-anxious presence in the world is because if Jesus can predict his own death, resurrection, he has that kind of ability and power. He certainly has the ability and the power to do anything that we may need to claim all the promises in the word of God. We can, we can walk in assurance that they are yes and amen because of predictions just like this. The fact that Jesus died on a rugged cross to take away the sins of you and I is a powerful truth. Which means this, the cost of following also with this individual, when he says fox of the holes and the birds there have nests, he says there's going to be a cost to following. And it may cost you some relationships. If you want to follow Jesus and you want to take God's word seriously, it's going to cost you some friendships, perhaps. It's going to cost you some relationships, perhaps. It's going to cost you some time, perhaps. It's going to cost you some money, perhaps. You're going to have to sacrifice some earthly rewards for heavenly rewards, for sure. Also, let's move on to the next disciple as we dig into this and we're going to land in the rest of our passage. Lord, first, this is what another disciple, he says, Lord, let me first go bury and let me first go and bury my father. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll follow you, Jesus. That's no problem. I'll do that. But first I got to go take care of this thing with my dad. We don't know for sure what's going on here. There's some speculation if it's one of three things. Maybe the reason why he wanted to first go back to his dad is maybe for him, maybe he had an inheritance coming and maybe his dad was close to death. So he's like, yeah, I want to, I, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and that's going to be cool. I'm, gonna, we're, I'm, I'm good with that. We're going to take care of all that. But first, I want my dad, well, I don't want my dad to die, but if when he dies, I want to make sure that I get that inheritance just because maybe this plan with you doesn't work out so well, and I got to have a little bit something to fall back on, a little, little safety net. So maybe that was getting in the way of his following. Maybe there was literally, maybe his dad was just dying, and he just wanted to go back and just to go be with his dad in those last moments. And, and even in Jesus' response would be, you know what, he's going to die anyway. You can't control that, so just follow me. Or last, maybe for him, maybe he was just ashamed of telling his father that he was going to leave the family business, which would have been common in their day, that he was just ashamed of leaving the family business to go follow this preacher. And he just counted the cost and he's like, first, I would be so ashamed to tell my dad that I'm going to throw away the family business to follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. This also points to 
whether it's any of those examples, it also points to families being idols. And, and any idol is something that is either formulated in your mind or it's, or it's a literal possession or thing you have or it's somebody like your family. You see, your family can become an idol and every idol, I want you to know that every idol gets in the way of your following. So I have some examples how your family can be an idol because we automatically think that that's not us, that's somebody else. When parents put their children first for 18 plus years and then they get divorced after their children are grown, family was an idol. When parents seek the approval of their children more than the approval of the Lord, I'll say that one again. When parents seek the approval of their children more than the approval of the Lord, your family is an idol. When families spend a fortune on nice vacations to spend quality time together, but they can't claim to put any money together to send their kids on a short-term missions trip or even a youth camp or a children's camp, your family may be an idol. It's when men give up their God-given responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in the home. Instead, they settle for just being an ATM for their kids and their wives' wishes and whims. Then your family has become an idol. For you singles, if you're so anxious about finding a spouse and I've got to find a spouse and I've got to have a boyfriend because if that boyfriend's going to lead to a husband, I've got to find a girlfriend because that may lead to a wife. And if, if that is what you're thinking about and your mind is obsessed about, that is the idea of family as an idol, of what you could have and you're allowing it to be an idol. Also, this one I hand wrote last night and this one, I just bear out as a pastor to you because this one is the one that I see so much. When, when parents, they use their kids' happiness to make spiritual decisions in their home. When they use their kids' happiness to make spiritual decisions in their home. I'll show you what this looks like in real life. Family comes to church, you send the kids back to DBC Kids or Children's Ministry, the kids are back there, and maybe little Billy's a little wild. Maybe he has some, some anger, some behavioral stuff, and Billy's jumping down, up and down on the chair, and a small group leader says, Billy, please get down. You're going to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. People who work with kids are smiling. They're like, you want a list of Billy's? I have them right now. So I see you. I was in kids' ministry for five years. I feel your pain. But even in the midst of that, you see, then Billy, he goes back and his parents say, well, how was church today, Billy? And Billy says, it wasn't very good. They were mean to me. Really? No, they weren't mean to you. They kept you from having a concussion. That's what they were doing. They were keeping you from putting like the person next to you in a headlock. And yet here's how this is played out. And this isn't funny. Then the parents use their kid's happiness as a decision to say, I don't think we're ever going to go back to that church again. You see, kids don't make spiritual decisions. Adults do. And if you're allowing your kids to make the spiritual decisions for your home or your kids' activities or, or softball or baseball or dance or football or whatever else it is, if you're allowing those things to dictate your life, your family is an idol. 
And that is, getting, that is already getting in the way of your ability to faithfully follow. Now, we're in the home stretch. Here we go. Let's finish this passage out. Then he, meaning Jesus, this is verse 23, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Wow, who does this? This, this would be the correct, like Sunday school, kids ministry, Jesus. This is the answer. He does this. But Jesus was sleeping. Verse 25, the disciples went and he woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, I believe they didn't say it near as tame as I did. But for the sake of your ears, I am, I'm simply just toning it down a little bit. But see, there's an exclamation point. See that when, when you can actually look at the Bible and actually see what the expression is by the punctuation that's involved. This wasn't just some little tame thing. They were crying out for their lives. Jesus replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. You see, if we've counted the cost of following, we understand that that when you follow Jesus, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you outside of your comfort zone. And that's what that was for the, the teacher of the law. It's going to take you outside of your comfort zone. You're going to get beyond your level of understanding. But also, when, when you get beyond uh, the things that tie us down, when you get beyond your family being idle and you've counted the cost of following, and that's a loyalty issue, and then you're, you're, you actually are growing in your loyalty to your walk with God, then in the middle of the storm, you don't have to be ranked with fear and worry and anxiety like the disciples were. then you can actually grow to be a non-anxious presence. See, this, this particular geographical area, it says lake. It's the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. I've never been there, but I hear from people who have. If you hear the term Sea of Galilee, you think it's like the Caribbean Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It's like this huge body of water. I've been told it's actually not very big at all. And yet when I look at this, we say, well, how is it that a boat is going to go out on the lake and they're fearing capsizing? It's because there's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, just seismic activity that goes on underneath this lake. There's two different plates that are, are at work and friction and pulling apart underneath this lake. And this lake itself sits 700 feet below sea level. And because the, the the uh, terrain around it, it just causes these pop-up storms. And these pop-up storms are known to have just waves that are as just crazy high, crazy high. So this is something that can be verified even today. These storms still exist. You can still go to the Sea of Galilee and this can be verified. So when I, I look at this passage and unfortunately, a lot of times in the past, I would look at verse 26 and I would look at Jesus's response to the, the disciples and I believe I would look at it wrong. I would look at it in the past. I would look at it as if Jesus were scolding the disciples. Like, seriously, you've watched me do all these things and now you're going to be afraid? This is what it says. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? See, I wonder if I was looking at that scripture all wrong for years. I wonder if I was looking at it as if God were just angry with them. But I wonder, and that's just me wondering, I wonder if Jesus was smiling when he said it. I mean, it absolutely could be. 
I wonder if Jesus was smiling when he said it. He says, oh, you have little faith. Do you still not have faith in me? I wonder if he just had a great big smile on his face. I wonder if what Jesus was teaching them wasn't just to scold them and, and, to, and to make them feel like they've done something wrong, but I wonder if in that moment he was just trying to teach them to trust him more. Trusting that his smile would be the non-anxious presence that they need in the time of the storm. See, many of us, we chase peace. And to gain a non-anxious presence, it doesn't mean that there's not gonna be elements of our life that are unpeaceful. See, peace doesn't come from finding lakes with no storms. It comes from finding Jesus in the boat. Peace doesn't come from finding lakes with no storms. It comes when you have Jesus in the boat. John Oatberg said this. He said, it is God's presence, not comfortable circumstances, that brings people to the best version of themselves. So that means when, for David to be David, David had to fight Goliath. That means for Daniel to be Daniel, he had to be thrown into the lion's den. That means for Elijah, for, to be Elijah, that he, he had to confront the prophets of Baal. That means that for Jeremiah to be Jeremiah and for him to, to, to live out the very writings of Jeremiah and Lamentations, in order for that to happen, that Jeremiah had to face extreme loneliness, that he had to be thrown into that empty well, that he had to feel abandoned by people so he could feel the non-anxious presence of God. Maybe that's the reason why Moses had to confront Pharaoh over and over and over again with all of those plagues. In order for Moses to be Moses, he had to do those things. And maybe for you and I, it's simply God's presence, not comfortable circumstances, that's actually going to bring out the best version of ourselves. You see, as the world is racked with confusion, the world is trying to gain control, the world is, is, is struggles with fear, the, the world is struggling with worry. The world needs Christians to be the non-anxious presence in the world so that we might be the calm in their storm as Jesus works in us and through us to them. Now, I want to conclude with this. Last week, I gave you step one in our pathway to, to go and to evangelize. And step one was this. Don't expect or assume that everyone sees what you see. Don't, don't expect or assume that everybody sees what you see. Because if somebody's far from God, they're spiritually blind. They simply cannot see what you see without God's intervention. Step two is today's add on to that. Help them to see what you see by watching what you do. Help them to see what you see by watching what you do. You see, I told you a story at the beginning of this talk about the ship and the squall and the waves, fearing death and the crew in the engine room struggling, thinking they were going to die. And one person went up to see the captain. And what was the captain doing? Smiling. I told you that story for this truth. We're the captain for somebody. 
we're the captain for somebody. People are watching us to see how we respond to life. People are watching us to see how honest we are in our failures. People are watching us to see how well we, we deal with things beyond our control. So step two, help them to see what you see by watching what you do. People are watching. And if we embrace the, the truth that we're the captain, that we are the non-anxious presence as we're trusting Jesus, that we've counted the cost of following and we're trusting in Jesus, that we're loyal to Jesus, that our hearts aren't unsettled, that we have peace with God that comes through the gospel message of Jesus, then we can be the calm, not only in the storm of our own, that God working through us will calm the storm in our own lives, but also he can use our influence to calm the storm in others. I believe that's one of the reasons why God has left us here. Because every time that you and I do what it is that we're supposed to do, God is glorified over and over and over. There was something that I I skipped earlier, and I want us to end if I can find it, because I think it's important. Again, if I can find it. And I feel led to say it. We must abide with Jesus, who is our comforter. He's our strength. He's our hope. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our advocate. He's our defender. He's our provider. And he is our peace. So that we can have a non-anxious presence in the world. That is the pathway to living out step number two. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today. I thank you, God, that that we can have peace. Peace enough to to still the, the worry and the anxiety. The peace to know that you're in control. The peace to know we're not alone. The peace and understanding that comes from a walk with you and also revealed in your word. And God, I thank you that, that this I know is true, that your will is always to glorify yourself. It's always to benefit our lives and it's always to help change the world around us. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us first. Amen.